we're going to do the um, the next two books in the Old Testament tonight, Hosea and Joel. Lee was asking a while back whether the next talk in the Bible survey was going to complete the Old Testament. And uh, of course I said no, the next talk will complete the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> but then I thought no, that will need at least two talks. So this one <laughs> will just be... Um, would just be Hosea and uh, Joel. And uh, so we'll commence with um, Hosea. Make sure you're turned to it because we're actually going to be, be reading some of it. Let's get the name out of the way first, Hosea. Obviously the equivalent of the Spanish name Jose, which of course immediately brings to mind the, the two famous brothers who were firemen, Jose and Hose B. <laughs> right, okay, Hosea. <laughs> right, now then, Hosea, let's, let's, let's place him. Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom, that's Israel, you remember? The kingdom divided, there was the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And Hosea was raised up to be a prophet of the northern kingdom about 200 years after the kingdom divided. All right. And uh, his message was primarily to the northern kingdom as well. He does allude to Judah, to the southern kingdom, but primarily the message that the Lord gave him was for the northern kingdom. Now, he started to prophesy in the reign of Jeroboam II, and I'll be reminding you of all the kings and the chronology of it all. And, uh, and it was at the reign, during the time of the reign of Jeroboam II, that the northern kingdom, after, two and a after 200 years, had really reached the zenith of economic and political power. So the, the kingdom is, is peaking politically and economically. And, uh, and Hosea began to prophesy at that point. And he continued to prophesy for a period of over 40 years. So he had quite a long ministry. I mean, contained in 12, 12 fairly short chapters, but over 40 years. And that ministry therefore took him up to the captivity. Remember when the Assyrians carted the northern kingdom off, and it actually took him beyond that. So he came on the scene 200 years after the dividing of the kingdom. He was in Israel, the northern kingdom, and his ministry took him right to the end of that kingdom, because of course 40 years or so later when the Assyrians invaded, they carted um, Israel off, and you know that was the end of the ten tribes, as it were. Now let me just zip you through the kings that he was contemporary with, or the kings who ruled in Israel during his ministry. Crumbs, he'll never sell ice cream travelling at that speed. Now, as I say, he started during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II, and of course you remember this, it's, it's all revision because we've done it before, but you'll remember that Jeroboam II, his son was Zechariah. And Zechariah 
lasted as king for six months when he was assassinated by Shalom. So then Shalom became king and he lasted a month. He was killed by a bloke called Menahem. So Menahem then took over, having killed Shalom. And uh, he was the king who became very much a puppet of Assyria. He formed an alliance with Assyria for 10 years. And um, he was then followed by King Pekahiah. <laughs> <laughs> Had enough jokes on names tonight. <laughs> and uh, he, was, um, he was king for two years. And then he was assassinated by Pekah and taken over by Pekah, who was then king for 18 years. And then uh, Pekah was uh, assassinated and succeeded by Hoshea. All right, and uh, he was the king who was reigning when eventually the Assyrians took them into captivity. So you can see that his ministry was over troubled times. This was, this was not a 40 year period of peace and harmony by any means. In fact, his ministry really spanned the decline and fall of a nation. Because when he started during the reign of Jeroboam II, as I say, the nation was very much at its peak. From then on, it declined. And so, as a prophet, he kind of prophesied, uh, you know, sort of throughout the decline and fall of a nation, the nation of Israel, the Northern Kingdom. Now, in the 200-year history that had elapsed since the kingdom divided, um, he had been preceded by Elijah and Elisha, who up till then had been the two foremost prophets to arise to Israel. And of course, we've seen them when we were doing the historical books. But he was also preceded by Jonah and Amos. Now, Jonah and Amos will come on to do later because their books come later on. But uh, Jonah and Amos preceded Hosea, all right, but we'll see them uh, in later talks. And uh, whilst Hosea was starting up and going strong in the north, um, Isaiah, who we've seen, and Micah, who we've yet to see, overlapped him down in the southern kingdom, down in Judah. And uh, we, we, we date Hosea's ministry from about 760 to 720 BC. As I say, his ministry kind of just went beyond the actual Assyrian captivity. So there's the background. The book, 12 chapters, sorry, 14 chapters, I said 12, though it's 14, divides into two clear sections. And uh, chapters 1 to 3 is the first section. And those chapters um, give us his personal situation. They relate to him personally. And then chapters 4 to 14 cover the various messages and prophecies that uh, God gave him to deliver to the nation. So there's two distinct parts there. Um, we'll do chapters 1 to 3 first, obviously, but, but they are kind of very much um, you know, kind of separate. They form the background to all the messages that the Lord gave him. And uh, so what we're going to start to do, before we actually dive in and do chapter 1, 2 and 3 um, kind of independently, just give you a quick overview of chapters 1 to 3. This gives you the personal situation that Hosea was in, because it's all important. 
and uh, so kind of an overview of the first three chapters then we'll look at each one individually and basically what happened with Isaiah uh, Isaiah with Hosea is that the Lord led him to marry a woman called Goma who was repeatedly um, and perpetually unfaithful to him um, it doesn't say blatantly, but I think reading between the lines, she was probably a prostitute who couldn't break the habit. And the Lord actually led him. I mean, he fell in love with Goma. He married her. But his situation is that throughout his life, Goma was perpetually being unfaithful to him and committing adultery. Uh, you know, she was, um, you know, sort of pretty, pretty awful to him. And therefore, his marriage becomes a kind of a prophetic illustration of the fundamental message that God was giving him to give to Israel. And it was fundamentally that, that Israel, the northern kingdom, was in continuous spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord. And in the Old Testament, you get this picture that at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and the Old Covenant that God says, I'm your husband and Israel became his wife. And yet again and again and again, Israel kept running off after other gods. And so that Israel continuously and, and especially through this last 40 years of its existence was very much committing spiritual adultery going after other gods, you name it, they were doing it. And so we see here that Hosea's personal situation, his marriage to a woman he loved very much, and yet who kept going off with other people, and yet each time she came back, he welcomed her back, he forgave her. This becomes a prophetic background to the message that he repeatedly gives to Israel over those 40 years. And we see that he really does live out the message that God has called him to give. And you can see how he really is sharing the Lord's heart in it all. Because as his heart was for his wife, Goma, so was the Lord's heart to Israel, all the time calling Israel back to faithfulness to him. And of course, in many ways, we can see that, that, that the heart of a true prophet will vibrate in sympathy, as it were, with what the Lord is feeling. You know, that there'll be a oneness with, with the burden of the Lord. I mean, the Bible speaks in terms of prophets having the burden of the Lord. And so you can see how with Hosea, that, that he, how he felt so much what God was saying to the nation, because he was living that out, experiencing it prophetically, in his marriage to his own wife. So that, that's the background of, of Hosea's personal situation. And uh, now we'll move on and look at the first three chapters in more detail. And uh, in chapter one, uh, you get the Lord actually leading him to marry Goma, and you get the explanation of her continued adultery and everything. And uh, she, she starts to bear him children. And uh, the names that God tells him to give to his children are again, they're all a prophetic sign to what God is saying to Israel. Now, firstly, Gomer bears him a son. 
and Hosea is told to call him Jezreel. So along comes, comes child number one, little boy, and Hosea is told to call him Jezreel. Now, I need to explain this. It's a bit intricate, but it's important. It's fundamental to the prophecies that he have. He has. And Jezreel, up to now, was a place name. This is the first time, you know, sort of like, you know, it becomes a, a personal name, but it was a place name. And you'll remember that, that one of the worst kings that Israel had ever had in its past was King Ahab. You'll remember that Elijah came up against King Ahab. And uh, Jezreel was the place where the dynasty of Ahab was eventually ended. And you'll remember that Ahab was eventually succeeded by a guy called Jehu. And Jehu had been anointed and led by God through Elijah and Elisha to, to be the one who would bring judgment on Ahab and his family for all his sins. And that what happened was that Ahab's dynasty was eventually terminated. And of course, this was one of the great judgments of the Lord when a family name came to an end. So the dynasty of Ahab, that evil king, had ended at a place called Jezreel. And that dynasty had ended at the hand of Jehu. And that had happened 50 years earlier. So 50 years prior to this point, the birth of Hosea's son, the dynasty of King Ahab had come to an end and his wife Jezebel, you remember, had been killed. And the family had been wiped out by Jehu who succeeded him as king. And that was 50 years earlier. Now, the king who was alive at the time when Hosea started to prophesy was Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was the great-grandson of Jehu. All right? So Ahab's dynasty, all his descendants, had been wiped out. His name was gone as a judgment of God. And the means of that judgment was Jehu who then started the next dynasty. And Jeroboam II, the king of Israel at this time, was the great-grandson of Jehu. And the significance of Hosea calling his firstborn son Jezreel was that this was to be a prophetic kind of sign that in the same way that Ahab's dynasty had come to an end, Jehu's dynasty was about to be ended by God as well. And that Jeroboam II, as a judgment from God, was going to see his rule and his reign and his family name um, go to pot. So in the same way that God's judgment came on Ahab and all his descendants were eventually killed, and that happened at a place called Jezreel, Hosea, calling his son Jezreel, is a sign that Jeroboam II, who was the great-grandson of Jehu, is now going to see his dynasty and family name end as well. And of course, what happened was that his son, Zechariah, so Jeroboam II, a few years after this, he was succeeded by his son, Zechariah, okay, and just six months later, Zechariah was assassinated by Shalom. And Shalom was not a member of the family, so the dynasty of um, Jehu is now gone. And a new family line takes over the kingdom. 
So here we see firstly that his son being called Jezreel is a proclamation of the, the, the king at that time that his family line is going to be obliterated in exactly the same way that Ahab's had been 50 years earlier. And a couple of years later, that is exactly what happened when Jeroboam II, his son, who succeeded him, was assassinated at, by Shalom, who then became king. And so the family line was completely broken and obliterated. Now, we're going to be coming back to this Jezreel thing shortly okay just but for the time being number one son called Jezreel Jezreel the place where Ahab's dynasty wiped out now the dynasty from Jehu Jeroboam the second is being wiped out as well but there's more on Jezreel shortly then secondly he has a daughter and this daughter is called Lo Ruhama and that means not loved so he's had number one son, Jezreel, now he has a daughter, and this daughter is called Lo-Ruhama, which means not loved. Then Goma bears him <clears throat> a second son, and that son is called Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So we have not loved and not my people. And of course this was a prophetic illustration of the fact that whereas the Lord was still with the southern kingdom, Judah, he was no longer with Israel. That time was up for Israel. That Israel had gone so far in its sin and idolatry that here God is saying, this is going to end badly. You're not my people, you're not loved. Now, if you just find verse 10 of chapter 1, I'm just going to read you verse 10 and 11. <clears throat> these verses basically end the, um, that chapter and, you, and you'll see we're going to be back to Jezreel in a minute yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them you are not my people they will be called sons of the living God the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. Now, obviously, this is end-time stuff, isn't it? Because at the moment, the people of Israel are gone. I mean, the northern kingdoms, they're still lost. But one day in the future, they're going to be reunited. And they will appoint one leader and will come out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So we've got Israel and Judah reunited. They're going to have one leader. That's going to be Messiah. And uh, they're going to come out there. And great will be the day of Jezreel. So this is, this is kind of end time stuff. And um, in fact, this verse 10, uh, you are not my people and they will be called sons of the living God. In actual fact, in, in, in Romans, Paul deals with the question, what exactly is Israel's future? What is the future that the Jews have got as a nation? They've been replaced by the church. Is that it for them? And of course, what happens is that in Romans 9, Paul teaches very clearly that whereas Israel has indeed been replaced by the Gentile church, it's only for a time. And that in a future that's yet to come, Israel will be restored fully in the end times. And it's this verse, verse 10, that Paul quotes to back up that argument from the Old Testament. 
So what we're seeing here, that this, these verses here are talking about a restoration in the future for Israel that hasn't happened yet. It's as yet unfulfilled. And that Paul uses this verse in Romans to argue the very same thing. But what's interesting is that it talks about for great will be the day of Jezreel. So here we have Jezreel again, but this time in the context of the end times. Now what's this all about? Well, remember that Jezreel was originally the place where Ahab's dynasty came to an end. So originally Jezreel, well not, you know, it, it still was then, it was a place name. And we see here that Jezreel now figures in the end times. Now, Jezreel, the actual place, was 10 miles southwest of Nazareth. That's where it's located. And it has other names as well. I mean, different places have different names, don't they? Or the same place can have various other names. And uh, the, the, the whole area in which Jezreel is in, like the area, is called the Plain of Jezreel. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Esdralon, which is the Greek. So Plain of Jezreel would be the Hebrew, and Esdralon means Plain of Jezreel in the Greek. And in the southern part of the Plain of Jezreel is a place called Megiddo. Now this, this should start ringing bells now. And in Mo Megiddo there's a hill. Megiddo as a place is characterised by the presence of this hill. Now, in Hebrew, hill of Megiddo, in Hebrew, is Armageddon. And of course, in Revelation, we're told that Armageddon is the place of the final battle between the Antichrist and his army and Jesus at the Second Coming. And of course, it's after that battle that you get the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so here we have, in Hosea, a prophecy about the end times and the actual battle of Armageddon, Jezreel. Because of course, after that battle, Jesus rules the earth for a thousand years, and it's during that time that Israel will be, as you know, Jesus will rule the earth from Israel, and that Israel will be united under one leader, the Messiah. Jesus ruling on the earth. So that, that, that bit, verses 9 and 10, very much end times stuff there. And, uh, so, and yet also, Hosea is talking about a time when eventually the southern kingdom was to be taken into captivity as well, but were restored to the land. And that what we're going to see is that you get a kind of prophecy working on two levels. A kind of a fulfilment that's going to happen fairly soon, and yet another fulfilment that is all in the end times. And we saw this particularly when we did Isaiah, that prophecy working on two levels, a fairly immediate thing, something that's going to happen in the next few years, but then also it applied to something that was going to happen in the far distant future in the end times. Right, let's, let's move on to, to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Israel is likened to Goma. And here you get the direct comparison. In the same way that Goma is adulterous to Hosea and is a faithless wife. 
in exactly the same way Israel is being faithless to the Lord and is not following the Lord as she should. And in the light of that, God pronounces judgment against Israel. That Israel is under his judgment because of her adultery and her spiritual unfaithfulness. And uh, that goes up very much to, to verse 13. And, and, and in verse 13, you've got, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. And that kind of sums up everything that Israel had been doing wrong over all those years. So there you have the prophecy of judgment. From verses 14 to 23, you get a prophecy of eventual restoration. That even though God's judgment is going to come down, that judgment is not going to be so complete that Israel is gone full times. So eventual restoration is going to happen. All right. Now, in verse 14, all right, you get this. The Lord says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. And what you've got there is the Lord saying that, that stand in, my blessing has not reached her. Israel is at the peak of her political and economic powers. My blessing has not wooed her. She has not responded to blessing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take her out into the wilderness. And what blessing her, what abundance hasn't done, taking her into the wilderness will do. Now, of course, on an immediate level, that wilderness that God was going to take her into was the captivity of the Assyrians. But ultimately, the wilderness that Israel is going to go into, that is going to win her for the Lord, is the great tribulation in the end times. It will be the seven years of God's judgment and the three and a half years of Antichrist trying to destroy Israel that will eventually bring Israel to the point where she cries out for Jesus to return and to rule her. And so again, you see it's working on the two levels. In one way, the judgment that's coming is the Assyrians taking her into captivity, but in another way, it's looking ahead to a future that Israel hasn't even had yet, and the great tribulation, the wilderness that she goes into, that will bring her back to the Lord. And, um, and also, if we just read verse 23... And, um, and we get this, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. Do you remember his son, not loved? I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. Now, we've already seen that in chapter 1, Paul quotes verse 10 in Romans, picking up his argument that Israel has a future, she's yet going to be restored, even though she's been replaced by the church. And in Romans 9 also, he quotes this, chapter 2, verse 23. So here, Hosea 2, verse 23, with Hosea 1, verse 10, are the two verses that Paul uses to show that Israel's replacement by the church is only temporary and that Israel yet has a future whereby she's going to be restored in a way that's never happened before. <clears throat> and of course, what this tells us, because Paul was using these verses in Hosea to be talking about the end times, 
This is how we know that the prophecy is working on two levels. On the one level, it's working about, you know, God's judgment on them there and then and that the Assyrians were going to come. But in another way, it's talking about a future when the Antichrist comes and you get the great tribulation and eventually Israel restored when Messiah rules on the earth. And of course, you've got a, a play on words here as well. You've got this idea that those who are, you know, those who are not my people shall be called my people. And you'll remember in Hosea 1, with naming his children, what was happening there is that he's saying, look, as Jews, we are God's people, but we forfeited that. He's saying now we're not his people. All right? But what's happening now for us in the church age is that we Gentiles who weren't his people, we're being called his people. And it's inverted. It works the other way around. And yet, after the church has gone to heaven, in the Great Tribulation, Israel, who of course now aren't God's people because we are, they're not God's people, but then they will be God's people. And you get this, this play on words from Israel to the Gentiles back to Israel again. And of course, that's what's happening here. It's a prophecy about the future of Israel up to when the Assyrians carted them off. But also it's a prophecy that in the light of the New Testament, we can see so clearly is talking about the end times and the great tribulation as well. So that's, that's chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, we have Gomer ending up as a slave. Um, she probably went back into prostitution, but she ends up a slave. So she's been committing adultery, she's gone off, she's left her husband, and she's ended up being sold into slavery. Now, what then happens is the Lord has Hosea go and buy her back out of slavery so she can go back home with him. So Hosea goes and redeems her out of slavery, takes her back home as his wife, because he loves her. He has her back. She is destroying him, she is being unfaithful to him, but he spends his money on setting her free and taking her home and forgiving her. And of course there you have the picture of how the Lord felt about his people. And you ultimately have um, a picture there of redemption and ransom, what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price, you and I, we rebelled against him. He paid the price for you and I to be forgiven. It didn't cost us anything. It cost him everything. And so you get this picture. And again, the Lord's feeling towards his people, towards Israel, and ultimately the whole world, because it points forward to the cross, when salvation went to the Gentiles as well. But you've got this thing, this love that the Lord has, and he just wants to call his people back to him, no matter how unfaithful they've been, he wants to ransom them out of the slave market of sin so that they can come home to him and be forgiven. And of course, that is the love uh, that God has for his people. And then chapter 3 ends with another prophecy of this eventual restoration that Israel will experience. And in that prophecy, the Lord says that she will one day be absolutely one with him. And of course, marriage, husband and wife, one flesh. And that the day is going to come when eventually Israel is going to be so close to the Lord 
It's going to be like a husband and wife, one flesh. And of course, that is going to be in the thousand year reign of Christ, when Jesus rules the earth from Jerusalem and Israel is kind of top dog nation of the earth, serving the Lord with everything that she's got. So they're another uh, prophecy of the eventual restoration of Israel. Now, with chapters one to three, that, that ends that first section, all right? That's, that's, if you like, the prophetic background against which Hosea, yeah, that's the personal situation that he was in. And that is the thrust of every message that he had for Israel. And in chapters four to 14, which I think you'll now find with that behind us, we can go through relatively quickly, are the general messages and prophecies that he had. So having seen the general background, now we, we, we just move now through the various prophecies that he gave at various times. And in chapter 4, and remember, this all spans 40 years, all right? So, I mean, it, it, these are all dotted at, at various points through his own personal history. And uh, in, in chapter 4, Israel's problem is stated to be idolatry, which was always the problem. And of course, remember, the first commandment was to have no other gods except God. And what did Israel do the whole time? They went after other gods, false idols, after the Baals. And so their problem is said to be idolatry, primarily. That's breaking commandment number one. And um, But of course, this led to a general immorality. And of course, there goes commandments two to ten specifically sexual. Israel, when you go through her history, was a very immoral nation. And one of the things that the Lord says here to them is that part of the problem was that their leadership and indeed the priesthood were as corrupt as the people. Now, you cannot get away from the fact that leadership and priesthood, you know, so in the church today it's not priesthood, we're all priests. But leadership of God's people is always by example. Now, you cannot get away from that. Leaders are examples whether they want to be or not. They've got no choice. They are examples. But they're examples either for good or bad. And here, the leadership of God's people set the example of licentiousness and being unfaithful to God. The result was the people followed. And so the Lord really kind of, you know, homes in on the fact that the leadership of God's people were absolutely corrupt and therefore the people were corrupt as well. Now, from this point on um, in Hosea, uh, Israel is, is referred to as Ephraim. And uh, the reason they're referred to as Ephraim um, is, is because of the, the ten northern tribes um, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, was the biggest and, and most central. So Ephraim was kind of like the top dog tribes of the Ten Kingdoms. And so from this point on, um, Hosea refers to them not as Israel or the Northern Kingdom, but refers to them as Ephraim. And uh, in the rest of chapter 4, um, the Lord tells them that Judah, the Southern Kingdom, is not as bad as Ephraim yet. Judah's still doing all right. One day it's going to do badly, but Judah's okay for the time being. But Ephraim, Israel, the northern kingdom, is definitely not. And that Ephraim is going to be carried away by a whirlwind. 
Now, obviously, that whirlwind was the Assyrian Empire who took them away into captivity and destroyed them. And so here, the Lord is saying this whirlwind, this being carried away into captivity, is going to happen because of the idolatry, the immorality, the corruption of the way that they were living. And in chapter 5, the Lord condemns their rebellion and prostitution, both spiritual and literal. So often where you get spiritual unfaithfulness, you get material unfaithfulness. You know, a sort of spiritual adultery ends, you know, sort of often leads to physical adultery. And, and, and so rebellion and prostitution, the, these things were rife in the land and the Lord condemns them for it. And uh, Ephraim, again referring to uh, the ten northern tribes as Ephraim, they're, they're addressed and, and condemned for, for turning to and forming an alliance with Assyria. And, uh, you know, you'll remember, uh, you know, that they eventually did this. They formed an alliance with Assyria, thinking that this was going to be good for them, you know, commercial gain, etc., etc. And in so doing, they went completely against the Lord, you know, in forming that alliance. They should never have done that, but they did. They, they, they went into partnership with up-and-coming Assyria, Assyria arising as a world power. They went into partnership with Assyria completely against the Lord's will. The Lord, through all the prophets, said, no, don't do it, but they did it anyway. And, of course, the poetic justice was that it was eventually Assyria that, that, that carted them off. And so there's poetic justice that so often, you know, sort of go against the Lord. And, and it's that thing that will eventually be your downfall. And, of course, their alliance with Assyria that they went into thinking this is going to be good for us eventually became the means of them being carted off into slavery. And also in chapter 5, you get a prophecy that Judah would also eventually be carted off into captivity as well. Now, of course, that happened a hundred years after the northern kingdom was carted off by Assyrians. But uh, nevertheless, here's a prophecy that eventually Judah would fall as well in the same way that Assyria did. And in, in chapter 6 to 7, they very much go together. Um, the Lord tells the people that he, he can't really do much with them because as, as soon as he, he, he moves amongst them, as soon as he does anything to help them, they automatically get worse. So what the Lord is saying, that every time he extends his hand in grace, they abuse it so much that, it, it, that they're actually worse for God trying to help them. And the Lord says to them that like Adam in the garden, in Eden, they have broken the covenant that they made with him. And Adam, he, he walked in, in the garden with the Lord face to face. And then, you know, through what the serpent did, what Satan did through the serpent, Adam threw it all in the Lord's face, broke the covenant. And God says, that's what you're doing. The more I bless you, the more you end up going against me. Therefore, the only thing left is judgment because you keep breaking the covenant with me. And then he lists the sins that they're committing again and again. Murder, deceit, theft, mugging, adultery, drunkenness, arrogance. A list of sins that they're guilty of. And then he goes on to say that the priests are as guilty as anyone. That the priests were the worst of the lot. And, and what a travesty, that kind of corruption could only end in God judging them. And then he likens them to a cake that um, hasn't been 
turned over and has only been cooked on one side. And he says, that is what you're like. And of course, the point is a cake that has only been, hasn't been turned over and is only done one side is absolutely useless. It's literally half-baked. One side has got the promise of a nice cake. The other side is inedible. And if you eat a cake that's only done on one side, yeah, the bit that's done looks nice. You eat it and you get stomach upset because of the bit that isn't done yet. And God says, that's what you're like. You're all promise. You've got promise. It looks all right. You know, you've got your religious bit on the outside. But he's saying, no, it's, it's all front. It's not real. You're half baked. And uh, if you just, just look at chapter 6, and let's just read verses 1, one to 2. And uh, the Lord says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, and he will bind up our wounds. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. And of course that's not, because that's a kind of, that's tying in the death of Jesus and him being raised on the third day with the fact that eventually that is what's going to happen for Israel as well. Although they're going to eventually die, they're going to be raised, as it were, from the dead on the third day. And of course, thereby you've got a prophecy as well about the fact that Messiah would die and be raised from the dead on the third day. But that only became clear that that was a prophecy about Messiah once Jesus had actually died and, and, and come to life on the third day. So that brings us now to chapter 8. And um, in chapter 8, they're condemned. This is all through prophecy, through Hosea bringing God's word to the nation. And they're condemned for setting up kings without the Lord's consent or approval. Now you'll remember that 200 years before Hosea started to prophesy, you'll remember that the northern tribes split from the south. They, they did a UDI, a unilateral declaration of independence. But remember, they split, they seceded, to give it its correct political term, they seceded from the dynasty and the power of King David. Or it wasn't King, da I mean, David was dead. It was during the reign of Solomon. But the point was they seceded from the political power and control and authority of the royal line of David. Now, the royal line of David was where Messiah was going to come from. So the point is, one of the reasons that Judah lasted longer than Israel is that Judah was God's appointed kingdom. The north wasn't. The north was always a rebellion. The north was always a breaking away from God's will. And here God says that one of the reasons for judgment is because they had seceded from the messianic line. They had established their own kings. God has established the family line for kings. It was set, the line of David. The northern kingdom were nothing to do with the line of David at all. They'd set up their own kings. And these kings didn't even last long. I mean, two or three generations, then there was, a, you know, assassination, then another family to it. It was chaos, you know, gangsterism, really. And so the Lord condemns them for that. And then also the Lord condemns them for the calf worship that was going on. Now, you'll remember the original king 
who seceded, or the original bloke who set up the northern kingdom and became its first king, was Jeroboam. And you'll remember that what he did is that he, he invented his own religion. And it was kind of, it was one of these, it was half and half worshipping Jehovah, but uh, it was doing it through a golden calf. You remember Israel had made a calf while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And so what happened was Jeroboam had set up this, you know, his own, you know, I've just made this up faith. And uh, he was holding the ten tribes together with that. And they're condemned by God for still following after that false religion. And uh, in, in verse 7, the message is quite simply this, that they had sowed to the wind and were about to reap the whirlwind. And of course, the whirlwind referred to earlier, the Assyrian captivity. I mean, you know, sort of, Paul makes it quite clear in Galatians that what you sow, you reap. It's as simple as that. It, it works. You can't, you can't sow one thing and reap another. And this nation, God's people, these ten tribes, they had kind of rebelled against the Lord again and again and again. They had broken the first commandment. They were going after every, every God except the one true God, the Lord God of Israel. And now the Lord is saying to them, right, you have sowed to the wind and now you're going to reap the whirlwind. The harvest of your sin is going to be judgment. And that's just the way it is. And then in chapter 9, the Lord tells them, the people, that they had become as vile as the idols that they worship. Now there's a principle as well. Idols are vile, and the reason that idols are vile is because they are an imagination, they don't even exist. They're a total and utter lie of the devil, idols are. And they're set up in competition with the one true God. You can't get a greater vileness than that. And here, if you worship idols, you will become like your idol. Now, this gives us a spiritual principle. And it's simply this, you will be like your God. That's why it works. You will be like your God. And we know that's true to the extent we submit to the Lord he works out his nature in us and we become more like him. And, uh, you know, but we can all see as well, can't I? I mean, if someone, if someone is stuck into money, if that's their idol mammon, they, they become, don't they? They, they? they become, it's all money, it's spend, spend, it's whatever. You become what your idol is. You will become like your God. And of course, that's a great encouragement because that means that we are going to be like our God. But here, God says, you've gone after idols and you have become as vile as the idols are. And uh, he, he says, judgment is coming on you because of that. And the Lord goes on to tell them, and uh, this was, was where the people had got to, um, is that the true prophet is considered to be a fool. So whenever God raised up a prophet, and don't think that the only prophets who were raised up at any point in the Bible were just the ones we know about. They weren't. We know about some of them, but there would have been many, many prophets who were raised up that they, they never appear in the Bible, they never wrote scripture, but they were there. I mean, we've just got some of them. But he says, you know, he's saying, look, the true prophet is considered a fool. A man of God is laughed at, is considered to be an absolute idiot. And the genuinely inspired man is considered to be a maniac. 
And so people who, in the midst of all this idolatry and sin and rebellion, those who stood up and declared themselves for the Lord, I mean, they were considered to be absolute idiots and, of course, were persecuted. And, uh, and the Lord said to them that as a people that they were rejected to become wanderers among the nations. Now, of course, that happened. The Assyrians carted them off. But it's 95% it's, it's true to this day. The Jews remain wanderers among the nations. A very few have got back into the land, but only very, very few. But one day, they're all going to be back in the land, and that will be great. Now, in chapter 10, the Lord says that they'll be carried off to Assyria, so now there's been prophecies that they're gonna, that the whirlwind's going to come and blow them away. Now it's specific. Now they're told it's the Assyrian Empire. You're going to go into Assyrian captivity. And that they would be carried off along with the wooden idols that they love so much. The Lord says, right, these are your gods, you've put your faith in them, right, well, I mean, I'll carry them off into captivity with you. You, you belong with your God. And, and that, that's true, isn't it? We all belong with our God. And so God says, right, you, you've got your gods, they can go into captivity with you. And he says, you will be ashamed and you will be disgraced for having trusted in them. Because their trust in idols, what did it get them? It got them judgment from the one true God. Well, what, what a stupid faith. What utter lunacy to have trusted in gods who didn't exist to the end that the one true God who does then judges you. And that's the result of having trusted in idols. It's, it's a mug's game, isn't it? And if we, if we read verse 12, because this is a verse, I mean, it applies to all of us all the time. God said it to them then, but it applies to us as well. Verse 12, and... Uh, wrong chapter, chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unploughed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. And the picture there is of a field where the ground is so hard that any seeds that were sown on it would just sit on the top and dry up. And he says, what you've got to do is you've got to, to, to break up your unploughed ground. So what God is saying, you must prepare your hearts to receive my word. Because at the end of the day, hearing the word of God will do no good whatsoever unless we live by it, unless we receive it as what James calls the implanted word. Then, you know, it grows in us and the righteousness is produced in us. So we've got to like break up that fallow ground of our hearts, as it says in one of the old translations. And uh, so we've got to make sure that our hearts are being receptive to the Lord. And that's down to us. The Lord will throw his seed all over the place. He will do everything necessary to produce a harvest of righteousness in us. But if our hearts are hard, it can't receive the word. So we must break up that fallow ground, make sure that our hearts are receptive to anything that the Lord's doing in us. Israel wasn't then, and God says, that's what I want you to be. Now, chapter 11, we're going to read some of this, because it's, um, 
it's, it's just a wonderful chapter. It's the chapter of where God declares his love for this rebellious people. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realise it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. I mean, it's the Lord saying, this is how much I love you. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Well, what can even God do when people are determined to turn from him? Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were outlying towns that were destroyed in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their home, declares the Lord. So the Lord's saying that this judgment, this destruction is only going to be temporary. And of course, a glorious future yet awaits Israel in the land because of God's love. He hasn't forgotten Israel. Israel is his son as a nation. He hasn't forgotten them. But that's a beautiful picture there of the love that God had for his people. And then in chapter 12, the Lord condemns them um, for their foreign policy. <coughs> now, their foreign policy uh, in, in involved Assyria and Egypt. And what they were doing is that they were playing both ends against the middle. Now, the result of this is that uh, Assyria carted them off into captivity. I mean, it was poetic justice. But nevertheless, Israel was operating a very dishonest foreign policy and the Lord condemns them for it and, uh, and at the same time uh, condemns them for dishonesty in commerce. The two go together. When you get corrupt government, you get corrupt business dealings. It's as simple as that. I mean, crumbs. You've only got to look at the West, the modern West today. You see corruption wherever you look. And uh, so in, in some way, the Lord is here saying you are corrupt through and through. And they were. And the law reminds them of something. And uh, the calf worship that Jeroboam, their first king, had introduced or made up, you know, thought up, uh, was still going on. I mean, all throughout, you know, sort of like the Norse history, it kept going on. And uh, you'll remember that the centre of that was Bethel. That, that was the, you know, the religious centre of the, uh, the northern kingdom. And the law reminds them, and th this is so ironic, the law reminds them that Bethel was the place where their forefather Jacob became a believer. It was at Bethel where Jacob had the vision of, of the ladder and angels ascending and descending up and down to heaven. And that was where Jacob, as it were, got saved at Bethel. 
And the Lord reminds them the irony of this. Jacob, one of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes. And the Lord reminds them that where your forefather Jacob became a believer and started to follow me, you have this false religion set up. So the Lord just showing them the irony of that. And in chapter 13, uh, the, the, the key verses here are, are verses 4 to 6. Let's, let's read them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no saviour except me. I cared for you in the desert, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. So then they forgot me. And they're the key verses. And the Lord is saying, look, the more I've blessed them, they got into the land, they got all the blessings that I promised them while they were still in Egypt, and the more I blessed them, the more they forgot me. And that was the problem. They turned to idols, they forgot the Lord their God, and they turned to idols. All the blessing made them uh, kind of, uh, well, it, it just increased their rebellion. Therefore, they're going to be judged. And verse 14, let's, let's just read this. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Now, that verse there, Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the fact that as believers, one day we're going to get glorified bodies. We're going to be raised from the dead. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And Paul quotes that from here. Now here, in Hosea, what's it talking about? Well, it's talking about the fact that the, these ten lost tribes, the northern kingdom, who are going to be carted off into Assyrian captivity, never to be heard of again, fundamentally the nation will have died completely. It's going to be raised again from the dead. There's going to be a resurrection as far as the northern kingdom, what are now the ten lost tribes, are concerned. And of course, in Revelation, you get the conversion of the 144,000 Jews and uh, from every tribe. And the ten lost tribes are there, represented in the 144,000. All except Dan. Dan isn't represented in 144,000 for reasons we can't go into now. But Ephraim uh, is represented by Manasseh, who was Ephraim's brother, and Joseph, who was Ephraim and Manasseh's father. So the point is, national resurrection is going to occur for Israel. And you remember in Ezekiel, we saw the valley of the dry bones. Like all the bones come together in a skeleton, then all the flesh goes on them, and then the breath of life is breathed in. So the point is, in exactly this, well, Israel <coughs> is going to be raised from the dead nationally in the future. It's going to be completely dead, then it's going to come back to life. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this verse to say, yeah, and that's what's going to happen to us physically as well, individually. We're going to be raised from the dead and get glorified bodies. And then in chapter 14, the last chapter, it ends with a, a final appeal that they might repent. And the Lord's saying, look, if you repent, then none of these judgments are going to happen. If you repent, you'll just get blessing. But of course we know from history they didn't repent and so the judgment came. But uh, it ends with the Lord confirming to them one last time that eventually Israel is going to be completely and 100% restored to the Lord. Right, okay, that's, that's Hosea. 
Um, we have got time to do Joel. Joel's very short, three chapters, no jokes. Joel's <laughs> growing mm. So, Joel. Now, <clears throat> virtually nothing is known about Joel. His date, um, who he was, what he was, virtually all we have is his book. We don't have any context where in Israel's history he came in at all. But uh, probably the best we can do is, is that the, the, the fact that he frequently mentions Judah and Jerusalem, it's the southern kingdom, and, and never mentions Israel, the northern kingdom, would at the very least suggest that he was a prophet down in the south, all right, never mentioning the north. And uh, maybe it was after Israel had gone into captivity, but I mean, at the end of the day, we do not know. All we know is that Joel was a prophet to the southern kingdom, to Judah. And uh, that, that's it. That's, that's basically all we can say about it. Now, the context of his book, or the prophecies that he had, was that um, there had been a massive invasion of locusts, which had completely destroyed Judah's crops and harvest, and uh, which had subsequently caused famine. And, I mean, major locust attack was really bad news in the ancient world. It, it, was, it was greatly feared. And it, it, it was seen, even by pagan nations, it was always seen as, as the judgment of the gods. You know, the last thing you ever needed was, was locusts. And so this invasion of locusts that had, has happened, <clears throat> Joel uses it to symbolise coming judgment on the land. And of course, eventually, Judah went off into Babylonian captivity, didn't it? But as the prophecy unfolds, this is very much the same as we saw in Hosea, as the prophecy unfolds, it becomes clear, again, that it's working on two levels. It's working on the level of that specific judgment of that specific swarm of literal locusts, right? And the locusts representing the coming, presumably, of the Babylonians. But it also works on the level that it's clearly talking about the second coming and the end times. So again, we see two applications, an immediate one, one that has been fulfilled, been and gone, another one which is yet to be fulfilled, still future, second coming. You'll, you'll see why I'm um, maintaining that shortly. And, um, and what's interesting is that in Revelation chapter 9, you have the account of the demons who are currently in Tartarus, or the bottomless pit, or the abyss, call it what you will. Uh, the, these demons are released onto the earth halfway through the Great Tribulation. This is all in Revelation 9. Now, if you read the description of those demons being released from the abyss, you will find that it, is, it uses the exact imagery and description that Joel uses of these locusts in his prophecy. So you see an immediate tie-in. Hence I'm saying that it works on two levels. That was then, this is yet to be. It's that sort of thing, then and in the future. 
So there's a time in Revelation, the description of the demons coming out of the abyss in chapter 9, is the same descriptive imagery that Joel uses of the locusts that he's actually writing about. This will become clear as we go through it. Chapter 1, and you get the, um, the description of this locust swarm and uh, graphic details of the effects that it caused. As I say, it was devastating. And uh, along with the despair and the mourning that it caused, because it meant death. It meant death. It meant famine. It meant that thousands upon thousands of people died. So this, it, it was bad news, ultimate bad news. And that Joel calls the nation to repentance in the light of this being a judgment. This has been God judging us. The sorrow, the devastation, the despair, the mourning that we're going through now is a result of the judgment of God on us because we're being unfaithful and he calls the people to repentance in the light of his declaration that these locusts are a judgment from God. In chapter 2, you jump now very much to the end times. To the people reading Joel then, chapters 2 and 3 looks like he's still talking about then, and on one level he is. But on another level, from the light that we have from the New Testament, we can see now that in chapter 2, it actually becomes prophecy about the end times. Let's have a look at it. Um, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Now what's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is from the rapture onwards. The whole end times thing. The whole second coming thing. Verse 4. Now then, this is talking about, ostensibly, about the locusts. Listen to this. Verse 4. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops. Right, now remembering that, go to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 being the thing that, that deals with these um, demons that come up from the abyss. Re read chapter 9 separately afterwards. I haven't got time to do it now, so we're running out of times. But, verse 7, the locusts look like horses prepared for battle. See, now that is exactly the description that he used. Um, you know, sort of, they have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. You see, it's the same imagery. So we can see that Joel is now jumping ahead. He didn't know it, but he's actually jumping ahead and he's talking about the great tribulations. Let's read verse 10. Before them the earth shakes and the sky trembles. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. Well, in the Gospels, when Jesus taught about the, the, what happens in the lead up to the second coming, virtually uses the same words. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Second coming, isn't it? That is definitely the second coming. This battle that it's describing at the second coming, where does that take place? Armageddon. What's Armageddon? Jezreel, Valley of Jezreel, just like we saw in Hosea. You see the tie-up between them. 
<coughs> then you get a call for repentance. And the Lord replies to this by saying that should repentance occur, then it will bring forth blessing and prosperity and peace. And of course the point is, prior to the second coming, Israel repents. And it's in Israel repenting and crying out for the Lord to come that you get the second coming. And then the rule of Jesus on the earth is established and Israel comes into all the blessings and the promises that the Lord has made throughout the Old Testament to it. And uh, let's read verse 28. Um, Afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Now I don't need to, um, to read any more of that, but it's the prophecy you all well know, that when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes that, he quotes Joel, that prophecy. Because the people say, what's this that's happening, Peter? They were Jews. And so Peter stands up, a Jew, and he says, this is what Joel prophesied. Now here's the point. The thing is that what, hap- what was happening on the day of Pentecost is that the church was being inaugurated. On the day of Pentecost, Israel got the chop, the Gentile church got brought in instead. Now, what was the sign, all right, to Israel of being out of fellowship, the ultimate sign? Captivity. What was captivity? Foreign people taking you away. Foreign people, foreign language, tongues. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. So what was happening on the day of Pentecost is because Israel had rejected Jesus, rather than the kingdom being established on the earth and the Holy Spirit being poured out on everyone, instead there were tongues given. Israel, no, you've got the chop. The church, the Gentiles, are going to take over where you left off. But of course the point is that eventually, at the second coming, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, Everyone on the earth is going to be a believer and they're all going to be baptised for the Spirit. So then I will pour my Spirit out on all flesh. Will happen then. Should have happened 2,000 years ago. But Israel rejected Jesus. (coughs) Therefore God rejected Israel, brought in the church instead. Tongues was a sign of that. So when when they said what's happening and Peter stood up and he quoted this, this, he wasn't saying, oh here you can see the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. It wasn't. The Holy Spirit was being poured out on 120 people. It's not all flesh, is it? Just a few billion short. (coughs) But they knew exactly what he was talking about because they were speaking in tongues. We saw that prophecy, didn't we, in Isaiah? Which was literally a prophecy about, you know, the gift of speaking in tongues being a sign of judgment. So when, when they said, what's happening, Peter? And he quoted this. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, sorry, lads, Israel's blown it. Gentile church now. But he says that in the background, and this is why Paul talks so much about it, (coughs) that Israel's future is still assured, but after the end of the church age. All right. And, uh, you know, so I mean, the point is that that, that this, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What's Joel talking about? The second coming. That's when it happens. That prophecy will be fulfilled literally at the second coming, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And then uh, in chapter 3, he moves on and uh, he describes the end times judgment on all the Gentile nations because of their oppression of the nation of Israel. So Joel now goes on to describe a time when there's going to be a judgment on all the Gentile nations. 
And uh, what he goes on to say, I mean, look, verse 14 in chapter 3, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. Boom, 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 what's this? This is just prior to the second coming. And so the Gentile nations are all being gathered together um, into this place called the Valley of Decision. And it is also called, here in Joel, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat, you'll remember he was one of uh, the good kings down in, the, in Judah in the south. Jehoshaphat means the Lord will judge. And so what we've got here is that Joel is describing the time at the second coming when all the Gentile nations, the armies of the Gentile nations, who were fighting on the side of the Antichrist, will be gathered together for judgment. Not necessarily the same place that the Battle of Armageddon happens at, but this separate, this is possibly even the sheep and the goats judgment, could well be. But they're gathered together in this place called the Valley of Decision or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now then, in Hosea we had the Valley of Jezreel, didn't we? That's Armageddon, where the actual second coming, the battle of the second coming takes place and the armies of the Antichrist are defeated. Here in Joel, we get the nations being gathered together, not for that final battle, but for judgment. So this looks like it's the sheep and the goats that Jesus spoke about. Now then, we can ask, where is it? Now, the Bible doesn't actually tell us exactly where it is, because the Valley of Decision, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, is a kind of a symbolic name. So, so it's not actually giving us a geographical location. Now, most, most scholars, most biblical experts, identify it as being the Kidron Valley, which is just outside of Jerusalem, between it and the Mount of Olives. And indeed, they believe that the second coming, at one point, when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives, it splits, doesn't it? And they say that it, this is the valley that is created when Jesus stands on the Mount, and, and this valley is then created just outside of Jerusalem, and, and that is where the judgment of the sheep and the goats, all the Gentile nations, the, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, the valley of decision, are gathered together. And of course, the basis of the sheep and the goats' judgment is how they treated Jesus' brethren. Well, who were Jesus' brethren? The, the Jews. So the sheep and the goats judgment is the judgment of Gentiles based on how they treated Israel. If they were believers, they're sheep, and they did good to Israel. If they're unbelievers, they're goats, and they did bad to Israel. Period. All right. So this is the judgment of Gentiles. There's another judgment that separates out Jews, you know, the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews. But this looks like to me is, is actually a description of the sheep and the goats judgment. And uh, so, as, as I say, a lot of Bible scholars think that it, it's this Kidron Valley and that is going to come even more so into being when Jesus lands on the olives. Um, it, it could be the Tekoa area where Jehoshaphat had his victory over Moab and Ammon. He was most famous for that fight. Do you remember when the Moabites and the Ammonites came? And remember, he, he sent out the, the singers ahead of the army. That's what Jehoshaphat was really famous for. Well, that was in the area of Tekoa, which, which is just um, south of Jerusalem. It could be there. That's a possibility. Perhaps the sheep and the goats' judgment happens there. Uh, it could even be Armageddon again. 
you know, maybe it's the same place that you get the battle and the sheep and the goat's judgment is there. I mean, one, one can't be 100% about these things. But the favourite of the experts is this thing about the Kidron Valley. And I must admit, I'm not an expert, but I tend to agree. I, I think that that, that 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 is just outside of Jerusalem, that that is the, um, the best bet. So what we've got here in Joel is that he goes from this locust invasion there and then in Judah, which he says, look, this is God's judgment, we've got to repent now and get back to the Lord. He goes from there and then it jumps into talking about the second coming, about the end times. And it, it you know, sort of like these locusts suddenly become a description of the demons being released out of Tartarus, or the bottomless pit, uh, the abyss, whichever, you know, it's called all three things. Um, and then he ends with this description, well, you know, of the, the sheep and the goats' judgment, all the Gentile nations being gathered together for judgment, and also describes the fact that once all the judgment is over, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, obviously you get the marriage supper of the Lamb that kicks it all off, Jesus is ruling on the earth, every human being is either glorified Old Testament saint or church member, I us, we're the church, everyone else are the survivors, of the Great Tribulation, who were saved, who were believers, those mortals, because we're all glorified, those mortals repopulate the earth during the thousand-year reign of Christ, and boom, they're all baptised with the Spirit. So therefore, Joel's prophecy, I will pour my Spirit out on all flesh, will be fulfilled quite literally, as Bible prophecy is always fulfilled, literally. So again, we see in Joel one application then, back then, during the time when Judah experienced this... Um, locust invasion and yet we see as well that it's also a reasonable short but reasonably detailed prophecy um, about the actual second coming and the sheep and the goats judgment and the millennium being kicked off with the holy spirit being poured out on every um everyone on the earth because they'll all be believers right okay that's hosea and joel and uh, we'll carry on next time